The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. How are you all doing? Pretty good. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. We are in uh, the fourth Sunday of the Lenten season. And so Lent is 40 days that we set aside to deepen our consideration of how transformation and maturity works. 40 days to continue to mature and transform. And so I thought maybe this morning um, we could begin a conversation about maturity. How does that sound? No? Yeah, scary. I know. (laughs) So why don't we do this? Um, Turn to a neighbor. Uh, When you think of maturity or maturation, what comes to mind? Just share it with someone next to you. All right? All right, what are we thinking? Maturity. Any thoughts? Responsibility. Did Wayne give you that? Are you cheating? (laughs) Anyone else want to share what Wayne's thinking? Just kidding. Maturity. Anybody? Humility. Good. Getting older. Yeah. Experience. Okay. Wisdom. Wisdom. Did you say it at the same time? Nice. What was that? (laughs) Um, So I was thinking about this. And uh, last week, eight days ago, I dropped off my older son, Joshua, who's 19, off in Mexico City for his gap year. And so you want to see a video of us dropping off? He's going to love that I'm showing you, by the way. So check it out. So we said our goodbyes, and we were in the lift headed to the airport. And we were all a little weepy. And I was just thinking over 19 years how much he's matured and changed, so much change. From his first smile, his first words, his first step, first time brushing his teeth. This wasn't the first time, but it was pretty early on. (laughs) First time playing with chalk, uh, his first Batman costume. And then 19 years, just like boom. And we drop him off as a photographer and artist in Mexico City. And there he goes. And I wish someone told me that the maturation process never stops. That the pace of maturity probably doesn't even change. Our physical markers slow down a little bit. But we kind of get embarrassed. When they show up, we hide them. So the question I want to ask this morning 
is what age are you physically? Some of you are like, I'm 30, but I feel 80. Some of you are like, I'm 65, but I feel 20, right? How, what age does your body feel? What age are you emotionally? What age are you spiritually? And I found for me that these things aren't binary or linear. There's parts of me that are emotionally actually quite young. There's parts of me emotionally that are a little more mature, same spiritually. And the scriptures have so much to say about maturity. Jesus says this, the seed that fell among thorns stand for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the same things we're choked by. Anxiety, bills and taxes, events and pleasures. And so there are things that might limit this maturation process that's supposed to happen. Paul says this, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ, all of it, is what we're invited to. We have access to that. James says this, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If there's one skill set for maturity, it could be perseverance. It's just like hanging on for dear life. And then there's a quote here by Anthony DeMello that I don't even know if I agree with it, but it makes me laugh. He says, people don't really want to grow up. People don't want to change. People don't really want to be happy. I was like, well, maybe some people. As someone said so wisely to me, don't try to make them happy. You'll only get in trouble. Don't try to teach a pig to sing. It wastes your time and it irritates the pig. <laughs> and so this morning... I would like to attempt to irritate the pig. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, let me give you the backstory before you read it. So we pick up the story where Moses, an adopted prince, and now a fugitive on the run. He's an oppressed person adopted into the palace of the oppressor. He's a third culture person. He's caught between two cultures like myself. And so he stumbles across an oppressor oppressing the oppressed, his own people, and he accidentally kills him. And now he's on the run 300 miles from the palace, and we pick up the story, Exodus 3. So we'll have it on the screen. Uh, read it aloud to a neighbor, and then we'll walk through it. All right? Exodus 3, go. All right, let's pick this up in verse 1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. So he's kind of made a life for himself now. He's 300 miles from the palace, new place, new people, but he's just going about his daily life. That's where we find him. And he led his flock beyond the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and then something flares up. In a flame of fire out of a bush, he looked, and the bush was blazing 
yet it was not yet consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look. He, he was like, man, this is so curious. I must look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned so we have the story, Moses is going about his daily life. Something flares up, and it's very consuming, but it doesn't consume the bush. And so maybe in this Lenten season, we can ask this. So as we've been going about our daily lives or daily tasks, is there something in our life that starts to flare up and consume us? Maybe it's a bad habit that we thought we had dealt with and kind of surfaces again. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relational pattern. Maybe you're like, oh, why am I so envious of whatever is happening? Like, why, why is this stirring up in me? So can you think of something that's kind of stirring up in your life right now? Just think of a specific thing. And so when something flares up, how do you respond? What do you do? You run from it. You distract yourself. Some of us maybe moralize it. So we're like, oh, this thing's kind of like scary. So I'm going to do like three more good things to balance it out. Right? Or do you do like the name of the game that I do, what I was taught is repression. Just like, oh, just like push it, push it down. All right. My therapist says, Repression is like pushing down a beach ball. You say, oh, and it's a pew. It'll shoot out in weird ways. It's coming back up. And what if in this Lenten season, things that flare up in our lives, what if they're parts of us that are just ready to mature? And what if we, like Moses, engaged it with some curiosity? So I've got a couple things in my life that are flaring up. Um, not yet ready to talk about them, working on it still. But I'll give you a more surface example because I think flare-ups come in all different shapes and sizes. So I grew up in Canada. Um, when I moved, uh, in seventh grade, I moved to Hong Kong, where my mother's from. I thought I was going back to my homeland, and I was even more ostracized in Hong Kong. So culturally and socially, it was a real challenge. In addition to that, I went from the top of my class to the bottom of my class in one day, boom. Their math and sciences were so ahead. And so that year academically was overwhelming. And that year was the year I gave up on school. And so for the next five years, I struggled academically. And by struggle, I mean uh, immigrant family struggle, so straight Bs, just all the way. But what I was told, this was the message I was given. You're not smart enough, and you're not trying hard enough. So you fast forward to my freshman year in college. I went to York University in Toronto. I remember walking into a large auditorium, uh, freshman political theory class. And it was my first memory of ever having a cup of coffee. So I remember grabbing a cup of coffee, sitting in the auditorium, and then drinking it. And I didn't know what caffeine felt like. And so the professors started talking. And I thought, this is so exhilarating. <laughs> Everything he's saying is so exciting. 
And not only did I understand everything he was saying, I had my own ideas about what he was saying. All right? So you've got seventh grade. You've got freshman year. Uh, three weeks ago for Lent, I decided to give up coffee. I was like, probably not a big deal. And that first week was so disorienting and emotionally disorienting. That's what surprised me. So the first week, you know, the headaches. And then I felt just a little slow, like not sharp. It felt like I had a turbo on my brain for 25 years and I just turned it off. <laughs> and it kind of felt, it felt like my superpowers were taken away a little bit. And I was like, huh, this is way more emotionally than it should be. This is like more than it should be. So I just engaged it with some curiosity. Oh, huh, like why? Like what does this mean? And I realized, oh man, I'm super attached to the idea of being a person with ideas and intellect. And who am I now if that's taken away or slowed down or separated? Does that make sense? And so in this season of Lent, what might be flaring up? And can we, like Moses, engage it with some curiosity? And perhaps we'll find that it's sacred and holy and that God's in that space, perhaps trying to transform and mature us, possibly. This is what James Hollis says. Some of us, understandably, do not wish to hear even this message of hope and personal growth. We wish to have our old world, our former assumptions and stratagems reinstituted as quickly as possible. We're desperate to hear, yes, your marriage can be restored to its pristine assumptions. Yes, your depression can be magically removed without understanding why it's come. Yes, your old values and preferences, they still work. But he says this, for those of us willing to stand in the heat of this transformational fire, the burning bush, Life provides a shot at getting themselves back again. They might still fondly gaze at the old world, but they risk engaging a larger world, one more complex, less safe, more challenging, the one that is already irresistibly hurtling toward them. And so maybe a spiritual practice this week can just consider what is it that's flaring up in your life? Treat it like a campfire. We all love campfires, right? This, this flame, just, just look at it for a little longer. And what might be surfacing, ready for us to mature? What, what, what part of us is ready to grow up a little bit? All right, let's keep going here. So Moses is trying to figure out who's, who's he's talking to. Who, who is this? Who's the character of this person? And so God's trying to tell Moses, who he is, he says, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians, to bring them up out of a land, to a land that's good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's trying to say, hey, this is who I am. This is who's going to be with you as you go back to your people. I am a God if there's misery, I see it. When people cry, 
I'm the God that hears their cries. If you suffer, I know you're suffering. My hope is wherever you're at, I want to heal you. I want to bring you into space in life that's really, really good, and it's a little bigger. It's a little more spacious, and when you're healed, it's going to be, it's going to feel like tender sweetness. It's a little bit like milk and honey, or for those of us lactose challenged, like soy and honey, or almond and honey, perhaps. And so, friends, life is really hard. It is. At some point, none of us are immune, and life will punch us in the face at some point. And if we're willing to stand and see how it might be maturing us, those parts are really, really painful, really, really lonely. And in this Lenten season, do we know that our miseries are seen? Whatever is making you miserable, you're seen. Whatever is causing the tears to well up, God hears or cries. In your sufferings, that baggage that you're carrying around of pain, you're not doing that alone. It's known. God is with us, trying to heal us to a good and spacious place. And so um, I apologize that my stories this morning are a little more self-referential. But I figure if we're talking about maturity, I'll invite you into a bit of my journey. I hope that's okay. So when I was in fourth grade in Canada... Um, we went to a wealthy Christian school across town. My family couldn't really afford it, and my parents really sacrificed to get us there. We woke up every morning. They had to drive an hour across town to go to this school. And so I remember that my sisters and me, we were the diversity of the school. It was like my sisters and me and one black student. We were the diversity. Like during missions week, they'd go, and here's the Sang family. And I'm like, I was born here. My Cantonese is terrible, right? I'm like, ah, missions we. But I remember in uh, fourth grade, there's a kid named Sean. I remember Sean got dropped off in a Mercedes convertible every morning. That's all I remember. I don't remember how the altercation started, but we were playing in recess. And he comes at me and he goes, You little chink. And I'm 10. I don't know how to respond, so I charge him. I go, you big a-hole, right? And so as often happens, the teacher only sees the retaliation and pulls me off him and drags me to the principal's office. I remember sitting in the principal's office trying to explain what happened. So in 1984 at a Christian school, you could say chink but not a-hole. And I remember trying to speak up. No, no, this, this is what happened. And the result of me trying to speak up for what happened, I was beat with a leather strap. 1984, it was a thing still. But this is what I learned as a 10-year-old. As a minority, if I speak up for injustice, it could end with violence. A couple months ago, a pastor church in Austin, we were dealing with some institutional conflict. So not with our own congregation. We're part of a denomination. And my personality is kind of conflict adverse. And it was something, I wouldn't choose it, but I was forced to kind of stand in the fire. It was like four or five really, really tough conversations. I had a lot of support from my staff, from our board. And I look back 
on something I would never choose to go through. And I now look back on two months ago with a little tender sweetness. And I realized, oh, that was super, super hard. But I found some healing. And in that experience, I realized, oh, when I was in fourth grade, my miseries were seen. They were seen. My cries were heard. My sufferings were known. It took 35 years for that to slowly resurface and to be healed and mature. But that part of me, when I look back, it feels a little more spacious. It feels a little more whole. And so for us, Ecclesia, in this Lenten season, what is it that's making you miserable? Who is making you miserable? Like, what is that thing when you wake up in the morning, you're like, we've all got that thing. Do you know your miseries are seen? When was the last time you cried? What were you crying about? Do we know that our cries are always, always heard? Your cries don't go out into the void. They're heard. What is the pain that we're carrying emotionally, spiritually, physically? Do we know that our sufferings are known? And we're not doing this alone. God is healing us to a bigger, spacious place. Thomas Keating says it like this. Divine love picks us up when we sincerely believe nobody else will. We then begin to experience or we're healed to freedom, peace, calm, equanimity, and liberation from the cravings for what we have come to know are damaging. Cravings that cannot bring happiness, but at best only momentary relief that makes the real problem And so maybe a spiritual practice here. What would it look like for us this week to listen to your life? Like, what does that look like? So I was listening to a podcast. There's an American psychologist. His name is John Gottman. And he was talking about marriage. And him and his wife were going through an intense period. And he asked his wife, "Um, do you want to talk about it? And she goes, yes, but you can't talk. So he goes, okay. So he pulls out a notepad. He's like, I'm just going to take notes. You talk. She talked for two hours, and he didn't say a word. He just took notes. He just. My wife and I kind of want to try that. I'm not a great listener, so just pull out a notepad. So what if we did that with our life? What, What is our life trying to communicate to us? What parts of us are crying out? What parts of us are suffering emotionally, physically? Like, what are our bodies trying to tell us? Our bodies are always trying to communicate to us. And what can we learn? And in the process, do we trust that in those spaces, God is deeply, deeply present and ready to heal us? All right, let's finish up. So Moses is trying to understand, like, who is, like, who is this? And so he's trying to, okay, I have a sense now of your character, but what's your name? Like, who are you? So Moses said to God, if I come to my people and say to them, the God of the answers has sent me to you. And they guess, well, what's his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, what does he say? 
I am who I am. I love that. He said further, thus you shall say to your people, I am has sent me to you. I find that to be fascinating. I find it to be endlessly knowable. I am who I am. I'm not even sure I know what it means, but I like talking about it. So um, we recently, my church in Austin, moved into a new building. Uh, you want to see a picture? Yeah. So that's what it looks like. Those chairs are from Ecclesia, by the way. So can we say thank you to Ecclesia? I've never seen human beings so excited about a chair. Our congregation was very excited about these chairs. So if you look at the back wall, this is what it says. Anyone notice anything? What do you notice? It's a typo. <laughs> we got a new building and put a typo on it. Right? It's supposed to be I am who I am. And we put I am what? I was like, no. Okay. <laughs> I've been trying to explain it. I think there's a possible theological explanation. People start rolling their eyes before I even explain it. Hang on. <laughs> so the Franciscans believe that creation is the first Bible. I love that. The Franciscans believe that not only are we sons and daughters of God, but all of creation, the entire universe are sons and daughters of God. So not only are we sons and daughters of God, but a baby beluga whale, uh, Arctic fox, um, a giraffe. Not only these animals, but El Capitan, the Himalayas, the Pacific Ocean are all sons and daughters of God. And so what I've been saying is, so it's not I am just I am who I am, but it's possible theologically that it's also I am what I am. And people are like, Gideon, come on, right? You know what the direct Hebrew translation is for this? I will be what I will be. Yes. All right, I'm going to do an informal poll. So who thinks it should be I am who I am? Okay, fair enough. Who thinks it's okay maybe I am what I am? Okay, so us. Still inconclusive. So I love this. We keep going. The text says this. So he's trying to communicate his identity, right? He's giving him his name. And so God said to Moses, thus you shall say to your people, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my timeless name. This is my title for all generations. So he's saying the Lord. Anyone know what that word is? It's Yahweh. It's what the ancients used because God is so big, so mysterious, so much other than us, so much bigger than us that we can't even utter God's name. It's the unutterable word, Yahweh. And then Protestants came along. We filled in the vowels and we were like singing songs like, give me a Y, give me an A, right? The ancients are rolling in their grave like, shh, we can't say it, right? But this is the question I have. Like, why? What are these stories trying to tell us about God and ourselves? Like, what, is, what are we supposed to learn? 
Because God's God. God could have said anything. Right? Moses could have been like, who shall I tell them that sent me? What is your name? Right? God could have been like, tell them Jerry sent you. Jerry, right? He could have used anything. <laughs> I am who I am. And so in our new uh, building, so the building's called Vesper, which mean, means an evening prayer. And it's separate intentionally from the church. The church is called Vox Venier. And so we want the city to use our building as much as possible. And so we host art shows, music shows, different groups use it. And then we see the church as just one of the groups that use the space. And our job as the church is to provide hospitality, facilitate collaboration. And so a few weeks ago during South by Southwest, we hosted a group called Brown State of Mind. And they're artists of color in Austin. And they had a film viewing and opening. It was beautiful and inspiring. And then at the end, they had a panel with all these artists. And they were sharing really vulnerably about their life as an artist of color in Austin. They were talking about the strengths. But then they talked a lot about their insecurities and their weaknesses and the things they're really scared of. And if you see the woman in red, she was sharing, she was sharing last actually. And she actually told a story that was really vulnerable about her insecurities as an artist. And after she told this beautiful, deeply vulnerable story, uh, she kind of looks up at the wall. These people have no church context. It's just an organization using the space. So she's sharing this vulnerable story. And then she kind of shrugs and she looks up at the wall. She goes, you know, but I am what I am. And I go, oh, I think I understand just a little bit more now. And so perhaps like Moses, we are inviting out of hiding from ourselves by I am. To be sent back to the world as we are. Because who we are over time is who we will be. And perhaps then maturity happens simply now in the present. So it goes now, 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 matures us into who we will be. Parker Palmer says it like this. The only way to become whole is to put our arms lovingly around everything we know ourselves to be, all of it. We're self-serving and generous. We're spiteful and compassionate. We're cowardly and courageous. We're treacherous and trustworthy. We must be able to say to ourselves and the world at large, I am all of the above. If we can't embrace the whole of who we are, embrace it with transformational love, we'll imprison the creative energies hidden in our own shadows and be unable to engage creatively the world's complex mix of shadow and light. And so Ecclesia, as life will invite us into the maturation process, will we engage it in this Lenten season and will we trust that we're not alone and God's in those spaces? And will we take off our shoes and meet God in those places? And so my prayer for us this morning is a poem by David White. And he says this, Just beyond yourself, 
It's where you need to be. Half a step into self-forgetting and the rest restored by what you'll meet. There is a road always beckoning. When you see the two sides of it closing together at that far horizon and the deep foundations of your own heart exactly at the same time, that's how you know it's the road you have to follow. That's how you know it's where you have to go. That's how you know you have to go. That's how you know. Just beyond yourself, it's where you need to be. And we pray this in the name of I am who knows our sufferings, of Christ who hears our cries, and the Spirit who heals us with tenderness. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.